0: Good morning again. Thank you so much for gathering this morning. Thank you for bringing the church into this sanctuary. It's my joy and privilege to be able to uh, open up God's word with you all uh, this morning. Um, and if you're somebody that's new to Crosspoint, we've never been introduced, my name's Jamie. It's my privilege to be one of the pastors uh, here. So again, so grateful uh, that you're here. Uh, we are in this uh, series called On Earth As It Is. In heaven, it is something that we return to each January, uh, taken directly from the Lord's prayer. In fact, it comes from Matthew chapter 6, verse 10 in this line, your kingdom come. And so we want to start each year by asking the Lord to be at work, that his kingdom would come. Not our plans, agendas, all right? Not our New Year's resolutions. Not that those things are necessarily bad at all, but we are praying that the Lord Jesus, like it would be his kingdom that would come, that it would be his will that would be done on earth as it is in heaven, And so that's what we're doing each week as we gather in the month of January. We're looking at the Lord's Prayer and this line in particular to help shape us and form us into a people that would pursue these things because here's the invitation each week. Will you pray this prayer? Will you pray these words, not just to give lip service to them, but would you pray them in such a way that you are surrendering all of who you are? And we don't just do that as isolated individuals, but also collectively as the church, that we would lay down our agenda and our plans, what we think might be best. And we would say, Lord, you know best. You have never failed. You continue to be faithful. And so we want to trust you. And so it's this call to surrender. And then in surrendering, here's the thing. The Lord invites us to use what he has given to us to see this prayer answered. And so that's the beauty of it, but it's the costliness. It can be a little frightening. It can be a little like uh, unnerving a bit, right? To be like, oh, how is this prayer going to get answered? Not because God needs us, but so often he chooses to work in and through his people, through the church. And so when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, the Lord is saying, thank you for joining in that prayer. And now I want to use you and what I've given to you to help that become a reality, knowing that we can't ultimately usher in the heavenly realm, all right? There's no sense here. We're not like delusional in thinking, particularly if you're new to this church, do they believe they can actually make heaven on earth? No, that is not possible. But Jesus still invites us to pray it. And to pray that it would look and reflect more and more like the heavenly realm. Because one day he's coming back to set everything right. And so we get to participate even now, like it starts now. And so it's always helpful then to make sure we're thinking about this rightly. To say on earth as it is in heaven. I think sometimes we can get confused with heaven, all right? And we're like, wait, so if I get up there and it's like, I meet Peter at the pearly gates, wherever that image came from, right? And he's like, hey, welcome. And he opens the the gate and and then somebody issues you a harp and you're like, oh, okay. And then they're like, you're like, what do I do with this? They're like, play it. How long? Forever, right? Um, Like, is that the image? And there's your cloud. And like, wait, what? What a weird image. That is not it. Like new heavens and new earth. The heavenly realm is everything as God intended to be with beauty and work and recreation and art and creativity and relationships, like all of these things. In fact, I love the way the Apostle Paul says this to a church in Philippi that was a Roman like outpost, really, right? And the people of Philippi, they were citizens of Rome, and so their whole life was spent saying, we want to make this city look and reflect like what Rome is. We want Caesar to be proud of us. Like, we want to make this place like Rome. And Paul then speaks to them. He borrows language and he says, but our citizenship, friends, it's not that you're just Roman citizens. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. So what we have here in this word that's given is a reminder, oh, our citizenship is not in Rome, the people are there, and our citizenship here is not just in America, all right? And the places that we should be paying attention to is not just someday off in, in the, the future as this disembodied soul, no. Like, did you see the, the language there? Like, we, will, it, we transformed our lowly body to be like Jesus's body, like Jesus cares about the material as well, like this world matters. And so our calling then is to say, oh, how can we as citizens of heaven Make the greater central Florida and Orlando area look more like the heavenly realm. What does it look like for your school, your workplace, your neighborhood, whether it be in Orlando or Castleberry or College Park or Maitland or Winter Park or Altamont Springs or wherever it is that you live, look more like the heavenly realm. And the idea we've been coming back to each week is this Hebrew word mishpat, all right? Say it with me on three, one, two, three. Mishpat, all right? is this Hebrew word for justice. And it means more than just rectifying justice as if a, like a court case and being like a trial taking place. It includes that, but it also means this restorative work. It's God restoring the shalom. And the language of Mishpat is so fascinating because it's not spoken of as an optional thing. It's literally God's way of saying the poor, the widow, the marginalized, the oftentimes overlooked, it's not just when you have time or it's convenient for you to bring some right ordering, to alleviate some of the pain. No, the scriptures tell us over and over again. In fact, this word shows up more than 200 times in the Old Testament. Our calling is to help people secure their rights, that they actually have a right to mishpat. They have a right to a right ordering. And So we're to step into those places. And so each week we've been looking at different aspects of what it looks like for the church to embrace this particular calling. And so friends, this, this morning, we're gonna look at a, a topic that is super important. It's incredibly, at times, divisive. It's sometimes can get thrown in the realm of like, oh, is this a, a political thing? And I hope it will be abundantly clear that this is not a political thing. We're talking about a Jesus and justice thing this morning. I also realize that what we're going to talk about can bring up a lot of pain. It may be part of your story or people that you're close to. And so my prayer this morning as we get into justice and the sanctity of life is that we as the church would venture forth with a courageousness that comes from the gospel, not being afraid to talk about difficult things, not being like unwilling to kind of enter in, but that we would also do it from a place of deep compassion, that we would not be puffed up and self-righteous, that we wouldn't think of this message as like, yeah, I hope this person here hears this, but we would open ourselves up and say, Lord, what do I need to hear? Where have I missed the mark? And that we would have a compassion for our neighbor that we would have a compassion for ourselves if this is part of your story as well. And so I wanna invite you, we're gonna be in selected, like various texts this morning. And so there are Bibles in the pews that encourage you to get those out. If you grew up like with sword drills, you'll like love this Sunday. You just be turning everywhere, all right? Some of you are like, what is that? It's just weird church culture. Don't worry about it. All right, so um, uh, maybe the easiest thing to do, you can get your phone out and go to thisiscp.church. And you'll see that little next steps icon in the lower right. If you click that, there's a place where you can click for sermon notes. And the text will be in and uh, various quotes and things are there. There's a space to, to take notes. But as we get into this, let me just lay a few things before you this morning. Imagine getting to introduce somebody to come speak. Like I got to do this last week because we had a guest preacher. And you try and highlight some of the things that are, you can't in a moment like summarize all of who this person is, but you tend to try and speak to like what are they about? What, what matters to them? What have they given their life to? And in Psalm 68, notice how God introduces himself. Like if you got an opportunity to introduce God, right, he would want to be identified in certain ways, not just the ways we would make it up or what we think of God, all right? But Psalm 68 says this. He's a father of the fatherless. Protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. So as God lives, God, the the existence of God is real, and this God, it tells us, as a father of the fatherless, that he cares. He's a protector of widows. You see his heart of compassion. Proverbs 31, as well, as we think about this idea of mishpat and what we're called and invited to as the church, it says this, open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. That there's these rights. This is the idea of Mishpat again. And there's also this call, would we speak? Open your mouth, it says, for the mute. Open your mouth for those that don't have a voice. And so friends, this morning, my my hope is that we will hear how the scriptures speak about those who don't have a voice. For those that are the, the unborn, for the children that are in the womb, that don't actually have a voice to speak, but have rights. How are we to think about this? What is the calling of the church in both being courageous and compassionate? How do we enter in? So we'll explore that. And what is an incredibly convicting passage in Proverbs chapter 24. Let me read to you these words. That verses, it's verses 11 to 12. And there's a call for us to enter in. Anytime life is at stake in the womb or outside of the womb. So please don't hear sanctity of life as if it's only in the womb, all right, because it's all of life. And we're going to explore that more. But sanctity of life is not just for life outside of the womb. It includes in the womb. And anytime life is being threatened, there is a call for the church to step in. And if we should choose to ignore that, the scriptures speak with some pretty prophetic, like profound, like hard words, but words that we need to hear. And so in the book of Proverbs, it says this, rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. And if you should say, behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch of your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? Friends, for decades, there has been a need for rescue for those who've been taken away to death. And may it not be said of us as the church that we might throw our hands up in the air and be like, oh, I never knew. Part of what this morning is Is in hopes of bringing some education to the things that we might not actually be considering. And knowing as well that um, certainly this has been a prevalent issue for years and years and years, I believe it's also more in the just the the cultural awareness right now, reversal of Roe v. Wade, all of these things. And so, how should we think about this as the church? And so, I want to explore three things this morning. I want to talk about the truth about life. I want to talk about the, the tragedy of abortion. And I want to talk about the triumph of God's grace. And at the conclusion of that, we're going to hear testimony, I would say, of mishpat, of justice. And some practical ways for us as the church that we can step in so that we would be people that would put on display. We care about all of life, in the womb and outside of the womb. But let's start with the truth about life. And so, we're going to be various texts that we're going to look at here uh, briefly. All of these, you could spend more time on it, but we're just going to kind of do this quick survey through some key passages. Again, this is cp.church. Click the sermon notes. These passages are there. But I want to start out with this. What does the Bible actually have to say about life? And then we're going to turn and we're going to talk for a moment. What does biology actually have to say about life in the scientific realm? But let's start with the scriptures. And so what we see as we open up the scriptures, one of the key places to go is Psalm 139. The whole thing's magnificent, all right? But let me zero in on verses 13 to 16. Up until this point, it's speaking of God's omniscience, his omnipresence, meaning he knows all things. He's everywhere. You can't outrun God. He sees everything. And then it tells us, it describes for us how God is so intimately involved in the creation of life. It says this, For you, Lord, formed my inward parts, You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame, it was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. That word literally in the Hebrew means embryo. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. And so we see God's just sovereignty and that he has written a plan for all of our days, even before there was one of them. And it tells us that the Lord Jesus, that the the Lord, right? The Lord himself is the one who is like knit us together, right? You knit me together in my mother's womb and I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Have you considered that about you this morning? We will talk about those in the womb for a moment, in just a moment. But like right now, you were fearfully and wonderfully made. You're not a mistake. The temperament you have, the personality, your physical appearance, the talents, abilities, the things you don't have talents and abilities in, like all of it, right, all by God's design. And in those moments where you stop reveling and marveling at the gifts of other people and it turns to, to jealousy, all right, maybe a bit of contempt, oh, they've got that. When I do that, when I look at somebody, else, well, what a great leader, or this person does this or that, or man, they really know how, how to preach and they can keep it within time, like all those things that I'm envious of, right? Like I can look at that, And functionally, what's happening is I'm shaking my fist at the creator, God, and saying, you made a mistake. Did you take a moment off in the knitting, like something happened there? Like, what's going on? Like, that's what we're communicating. But God is telling us, listen, through the psalmist, like, you've been knit together. I've shared this before, but the only person I really knew that knitted was my my great-grandmother, right? And she would knit mittens and hats, and it was impressive, right, that she would do that. But no, not knocking my great-grandmother, but it's nothing compared to knitting a human being together, right? Like that's what God is doing. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, all right? Uh, Job would describe it this way. You clothe me, he says to the Lord, with the skin and flesh and knit me together. There's that language with bones and sinews. There's the prophet Jeremiah. And the Lord comes to him and says, here, I want you to know the plans that I have how I've put you together? He says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. So before you were even in the embryonic state, he's like, I knew you, I had a plan for you, I knew what you were going to do, and then I went ahead and I created you, I knit you together, I crafted you. You are not a mistake. If we jump ahead to the New Testament, we see God showing up, right, through an angel, and he goes to speak to this woman, Elizabeth, who is barren. She's longed to have children. She's now at an age where it's very, very unlikely that she would, and she gets word that she's gonna give birth. And it's gonna be the one who would pave the way for the Lord, to prepare the way. It's John, The one we know as John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer. It's not a denomination. It's not like John the Presbyterian, right, or John, like John, John the Baptizer, right? And here's what it says. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Whoa, not just when he's outside of the womb, though certainly that was true, while he was in the womb filled with the Holy Spirit. And if we were to keep reading, we'd come to verse 41 of Luke chapter one. And there this young girl, this teenage virgin named Mary shows up, who's related to Elizabeth, and she's gotten word that she's going to give birth to the Son of God. And she rushes to tell Elizabeth, and they're going to rejoice together. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. That John there in the womb recognizes the voice of the mother of God. He's like, it's party time, all right? And he just leaps, and there's this activity in her womb. So we see, how does the scripture speak of life? God knits together. This is a person that God is putting together. And perhaps the place to go to is all the way back at the beginning of the scriptures which is so key to our understanding this whole story that we're part of. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 27, remember, God has just finished, right, like literally separating light and darkness, and he's making all the vegetation, he's causing crops to grow, all of these things. There's the ocean and the dry land, there's all the animals. He said it's good, and then he gets to the pinnacle of his creation, and he says these words, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the seas and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Friends, you are an image bearer of God. The person next to you is an image bearer of God. Every person who's ever walked the planet has been an image-bearer of God. And when you were in your mother's womb, you were already an image-bearer of God. This line means that you have a worth, value, a dignity. There's nothing that you earned. You didn't go out and say, I'm going to achieve image-bearer status. It was bestowed upon you as a gift. It's what is true of every person in the womb and outside Of the womb. It is key to understanding what we're about to talk about and dive into further. Is that people, men and women, children made in the image and likeness of God. Now, listen. I'm I'm pro animals. I'm pro pets. All right maybe not all pets, but most pets, right? Um, We love our dogs that we've had over the years. We spent too much money on these dogs trying to rescue them. And some of you know this story. It's like the three-legged dog we had. Yep, that was us. All right. Started with four, went to three. Anyway, um, so like we're all in on our pets. All right. Our dog Bailey, if you got to, to meet her, we love Bailey. She's cute. She's weird, right? Whatever. But like, If this afternoon the family's gathered around and we're watching some NFL playoffs and suddenly I I like smell smoke and I see fire and it looks like our whole house is about to be consumed in in fire, all right? Under no circumstances am I like, I gotta get Bailey, right? Like, and I'm running to get her. I am making sure, listen, I'll I'll rescue her in a moment, but I wanna make sure the wife and children are out and safe, right, or any other image bearers that are in the home. And then if you want, go back in and get the dog. Now, it's a silly illustration, except it points to the reality, like, the worth and the value and the dignity. No other creature on the planet is imprinted with the image of God sort of status. That's who we are. And so that's what the Bible teaches. And we could go on and on and on, but let me just spend a few moments. Like, what does biology actually have to say? All right? I'm no biology teacher. Some of you, uh, this is your jam, and you know these things. Uh, but let me just... Read a, a few things, all right? Some of you are like going to have flashbacks to your high school classes. It's, it's okay, all right? Just, just bear, bear with me. What is, even in the first eight weeks of pregnancy, here's some things that are true, recognized by those regardless of what camp they fall in, in the, the pro-life, pro-choice, wherever they are on that spectrum. So fascinating things. It's linked out again in the, the sermon notes. But human life... Scientists most agree now. It begins at conception, fertilization. At the moment of fertilization, a new and unique human being comes into existence with its own distinct genetic code, 23 chromosomes from the mother, 23 from the father, combined to result in a brand new new and totally unique genetic combination. Implantation happens about eight days after conception. If we jump ahead to 21 days in, we're three weeks in, the heart starts beating and it will beat some 54 million times before it's born. Kidneys are preparing for urine function at this point. Eye bulges become visible. The brain is dividing into three sections. Between days 26 and 28, the arms are forming and becoming distinguishable between a lower arm and an upper arm. The embryo is now also beginning to produce the cells. This is crazy, listen to this. Produce the cells for producing the eggs or sperm necessary for their own reproductive future. So they're just planning ahead, all right? Four weeks in, brain development rapidly speeds up. Between days 31 to 33, the brain size increases by 25%. Day 31, hand formation. Two days later, feet, the retina of the eyes gain pigment, and the nose starts to elevate. At five weeks, Permanent kidneys appear, external portions of the ear appears, and the embryo doubles in size. At six weeks, the brain is emitting measurable brain impulses, there are small bodily movements. The embryo can respond to stimuli and may actually be able to feel pain at this point. Bone ossification has become, begun, lips have appeared, all 20 teeth buds are now in the gums, the diaphragm is formed, kidneys are now producing urine, and the stomach is producing gastric juices. At seven weeks, you can now see distinct leg movements. It's been noted that they found the child with hiccups at this point. A four-chambered heart has reached completion. Fingers and toes separated, knee joints present, and the ability to smell. And at eight weeks, now from an embryo to a fetus, every organ is present and in place. 90% of the structures found in an adult human can now be found in the fetus. They began to show hand dominance, right hand and left hand, Skin is beginning to thicken. And each week, there's more and there's more and there's more. And so, the truth about life. We don't shy away from talking about the the scriptures and looking at that. We also shouldn't shy away from science. Like, looking at this, like, yes, it all speaks the beauty and the wonder. And so, with this, then, I want to talk for a few moments about if this is the truth about life, let's talk about the tragedy of abortion. And again, keeping in mind, how do we enter in with great compassion and also a courageousness in regards to like not shying away from these things, examining our own heart in these matters? Estimated just statistically, if you go back since 1973, it's been estimated that since the original Roe v. Wade decision, there's some 2,500 abortions that take place in America every day. So all of those things that I just read through in the first eight weeks, terminated, done away with. This has resulted in what most people would say is upwards of 61 million deaths by abortion since 1973. This is a somewhat outdated graphic, but you can see, I'll put this this up here on the the right side, Um, that little quad, each little square represents about 455,000 lives lost. Uh, that would be the World War II lives lost. And then you fill in the other side just to give some perspective. In Sanctity of Life, it all matters, right? It's not knocking World War II. It's just, let's put some of the statistics in perspective. Now, I think the tendency can be to say, well, you expect the church to say this. And maybe it's like, oh, you're bringing your religion into this. I want to read to you what I find are incredibly poignant, insightful things said by those I would say who are some of the most—I would say—more on the far extreme side of the pro-abortion, pro-choice side of it. I don't think it's fair to just come in with all the, the pro-life quotes and like. Let me read to you a few things from those and see what they have to say about the biology of it. What do they actually have to say about these matters? And so I'll read to you a few of these things. The first is from Faye Waddleton, past president of Planned Parenthood. Uh, I think we have deluded ourselves into believing that people don't know that abortion is killing. So any pretense that abortion is not killing is a signal of our ambivalence, a signal that we cannot say, yes, it kills a fetus. There's actually no objection. That's what you're gonna hear in these quotes. There's there's no objection to the fact like, oh, that actually is a human being. We continue, here's another quote. This is from the person who was was once the chief executive of the largest independent abortion business clinic in the UK, Anne Ferretti. We can accept that the embryo is a living thing in the fact that it has a beating heart, that it has its own genetic system within it. It's clearly human in the sense that it's not a gerbil, and we can recognize that it is human life. Again, this is not out of the pro-life camp. This is those who helped run abortion clinics. They've given their life to this cause, right? Peter Singer, uh, perhaps one of the, the most extreme on this, philosopher, public abortion advocate, says this, it is possible to give, quote, human being a precise meaning. We can use it as an equivalent to, quote, member of the species Homo sapiens, whether a being is a member of a given species is something that can be determined scientifically by an examination of the nature of the chromosomes in the cells of living organisms. In this sense, there's no doubt that the, from the first moments of its, of its existence, an embryo conceived from human sperm and eggs is a human being. This is a man, I'll reference this later, who would be of extreme thinking that would say even outside of the womb, if there's any particular defects, to go as far to say three days, three years, somewhere in between, if you notice anything, you can go ahead and terminate the child. Again, we're not talking like pro-life folks saying these things. I'll read you one last one from Bernard Nathanson. There's simply no doubt that even the early embryo is a human being All its genetic coding and all its features are indisputably human. As to being, there is no doubt that it exists, is alive, is self-directed, is not the same being as the mother, and is therefore a unified whole. So we need to ask a question here. How, How do we get to where we are today? Like how have we arrived in this particular place? where people on the pro-life and pro-choice I would both actually say, it's a human being. It's distinct from the mother. Like, how have we arrived there? And so I wanna remind us of something that is fundamentally true. This is not being waged just in the realm of just like what we can see and observe, that there's powers, there's principalities, that there's a very real enemy who wants to push a particular lie in a particular agenda. It's the devil himself. I'll read John eight forty four here in a moment. And he has an agenda to steal and to kill and destroy and to bring mayhem and to bring confusion. Jesus says this about him in John chapter eight. You are of your father, the devil. He's speaking to this group of highly religious people, interestingly enough. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And so, friends, what I, I want to do for a few minutes is, again, ask the question how do, how do we get here? What is, I do believe there's a particular lie, there's a particular strategy that's been at work. It's been going on for a long, long time. It's not limited to the United States of America. That's the context we're gonna talk about it, but it literally is worldwide. And we have to go for a moment. And on one hand, I feel apologetic about this because like maybe it'll make your brain hurt a little bit, but like we, we have to think. Like we have to do some worldview work. We have to do some philosophy a little bit. Like part of the job, part of my role in calling as a pastor, equip the saints for the work of ministry. You're the saints. Right? Like we're included in that. And what does it look like to equip so we might actually rightly know, like, and understand and can recognize the tactic of the enemy? And so, in her great book, Love Thy Body, it's a work by Nancy Piercy, she's a theologian, brilliant philosopher. I would commend this book to you. There's an opening, the introduction, and the first chapter is specifically on on abortion, but it gets into all sorts of different topics, all right? that's all related to what I'm about to share. And so it's, you know, this 300-page book, specifically 50 to 60 pages that are about what we're about to talk about, and I've got about three or four minutes. So here we go, all right? Um, But to try and condense this, she says, what has been at play? The answer to this question, how the enemy is at work, is what has been promoted is the lie of dualism. So I need you to picture what you see there as picture reality broken up into a lower story of a house and an upper story. Now, the Christian story is a unified whole, right? Again, think about it. Like Jesus is coming back with a body. He's not just this floating, you know, disembodied spirit. That's not our reality for all of us. God has created the world. Matter matters to God. Like think about that. Get that in your brain. Like own that. Like that is true. All right? All right. So, God cares about it, but the lie of the enemy is to get us to think that there's an upper story and there's a lower story. And so, where Nancy Piercy goes in her work to try and summarize, is she said, All right, the lower story these days, and the lie of the enemy is to get us to think that the lower story is just things like science and facts. And so, under that, you would put public, objective, valid for everyone. You can study it, you can examine it, maybe you can put it under a microscope, whatever, right? Like, that is the lower story. But in the realm of the upper story, we're talking theology, we're talking values, we're talking philosophy. It's private, it's subjective, it's relativistic. It's the popular cultural notion today. That's great, that's true for you, but it's not true for me. And there's this separation that's happening, splitting the world into this dualism, that these two stories. And once that begins to happen, here's what is taking place functionally and fundamentally? How do we get to people on either side, pro-choice, pro-life, saying it's a human being, and one group saying it's an image-bearer to protect, and the other group saying you can kill it? How do we actually get there if they're both seeing it as a human being? Well, it's because this, if you play it out, what has happened is a personhood theory has developed. And the way personhood theory goes is at the lower level, the lower story is the body. It's an expendable biological organism. And at the top story, the second story, is a person who has moral and legal standing. So it's separating the body somehow from the person. And so functionally and fundamentally, what we have going on in our culture is people that would say, yes, it's a human being, recognize the body. I got no problem identifying that as a body. But it's not a person. And somehow, in ways that have not been explained, it is granted personhood some way, somehow, when it comes into the world. So for a moment, even just thinking about, sometimes Christianity gets put in this thing, well, don't bring your religion into it. I'm like, hey, we're bringing our religion into it. We're bringing the scriptures into it. I'm okay with that. But can we at least play fair? Can we at least talk about it is religion, philosophy, worldly. It's being brought in at all from everybody. And so in this dualism, you end up having... Let me read this quote from Nancy Piercy. She says this, "...secular thought today assumes a body-person split with the body defined in the, quote, fact realm by empirical science, lower story, and the person defined in the values realm as the basis for rights, or the upper story. This dualism has created a fractured, fragmented view of the human being in which the body is treated as separate from the authentic self." What we have is a world that we now inhabit where not everybody is viewed as an actual person. You might be a human being, but you're not a person. And it's a lie from the pit of hell by the devil himself. That's an image bearer. That's not just a body. And that's true of anyone in the womb or outside of the womb. Do you you see the scary spot that we get in? I mean, just study world history and you begin to see personhood theory play out. Oh, you're crippled? You're mentally handicapped? Oh, you've got some sort of birth defect or in your old age, you don't remember things? Like, you're you're now expendable. Nazi Germany, worldwide genocide. Like, look at these things. This plays out. Where it's like, you're not actually viewed as a person. This is why we are where we are. So it raises the question, like, who gets to qualify as a person? And friends, the great, the beautiful good news as the church that we get to step into is say, listen, you don't earn personhood status. Like, we can get off this treadmill of trying to think we've got to prove, we've got to accomplish, we've got to make something of ourselves. You're an image bearer of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're made in the image and likeness of God. God said, "Let's let's make humanity in our image. And then he knitted you together. That's how he works. Piercy continues, she says this, according to the body-person dichotomy, just being biologically part of the human race, the lower story, is not morally relevant. Individuals must earn the status of personhood by meeting an additional set of criteria. Perhaps the ability to make decisions, exercise self-awareness, plan for the future, and so on. All upper story things. Only those who meet these added conditions qualify As persons, which is why some, on the even more extreme, would say, you know what, personhood doesn't happen the moment they come out of the womb. Some would even advocate at least take three days, because in the first three days, a lot of times you will recognize if there's any particular birth defects or or, or things that might might make the life more challenging for the child, and many would say, it's fine, you can go ahead and terminate life. Some on the most, most extreme, would even go so far to say, I'll give you the first three years. This is the world that we inhabit, and there is a very real enemy that is wanting to problem. I think rightly so gets knocked. And so friends, listen, sometimes the church, and I think rightly so gets knocked, as we can act very exclusive. like who's being exclusive and who's being inclusive? Because the scriptures speak of a God that is literally named and created every person as an image bearer. You don't have anything to earn. You've got nothing to prove. You're full of worth, value, and dignity because you're made in the image of God. Here are these words. That, beautifully enough, we were part of prayer and part of the service earlier as well. So Psalm 8. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, son of man that you care for him? And then here's what it speaks of about humanity. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. Friends, those words are not just for Christians. That's true of everybody. Made in the image and likeness of God with good work to do. And so before we get into the last section, just think about this. Psalm 139, you're knit together. Psalm 8, you've got worth, value, dominion, all of these things. Who's writing that? It's King David. On one hand, it makes sense. A oh, man after God's own heart. But do you also know the rest of the story? Imagine many of you are familiar with it. A man who commits adultery. And then a man who goes after that woman's husband and has him killed. David is not innocent. David has shed innocent blood. David has a fellow image bearers killed for no justifiable reason at all. And yet, God works. That's as we go through this, friends. Let me just, I want to make sure this is so abundantly clear. I think we've got to talk about the hard things. I think our calling is to recognize where the lie is at work, where the enemy is at work, and the lie that's being propagated. But the way we counter the lie is with the truth. It's the triumph of God's grace, the triumph of truth. The triumph of the fact that David would be regarded as a man after God's own heart because he experienced the grace of God that he would cry out and he would ask for mercy. Hear these words in 1 Timothy chapter 1, 15 to 17. And keep in mind, the person writing this is the Apostle Paul. And what did Paul do before he became a follower of Jesus? He organized a systematic way of killing Christians. He has blood on his hands. He sought the death of of people, he literally has blood on his hands, and he writes this. First Timothy's writing to young Timothy, he's mentoring this young pastor. The saying is trustworthy and deserves deserving a full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, not those bad people out there, not those people that have taken people's lives and deserve judgment and hell. He said, like, No, no, no. Listen, He came to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Forget everybody else. It's me. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life, To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And it sounds like the end of the book, but he's just getting started. He's just burst into doxology that takes place in chapter 1. Why? Because he's so caught up. He's marveling at the grace of God. Like, I put people to death for a belief in Jesus, and this Jesus showed up and rescued me. How glorious, how amazing. So lest any of us for a moment get puffed up and be like, I can't believe people do this, right? We look down our noses. I can't believe these women go and do this or these men encourage this and all of these things. We need to name sin what it is. And then we also need to see ourselves as the sinners that we are because you go and read the Sermon on the Mount and you get to Matthew 5 and Jesus is going to tell us, hey, you got anger in your heart? You've committed murder. And just levels the playing field. And then this Jesus, the only one who could ever be regarded as innocent life that is lost, is actually put on the cross. We read of this in Luke chapter 22, verses 33 to 34. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. The triumph of grace, friends, He's forgiving those who are putting him to death. And it's not just Jewish people back then that called for him to be put to death. And it's not just the decision that Pilate made. I put him to death. You put him to death. Jesus' blood is on your hands and on my hands. That's the reality. None of us are innocent. We're all implicated in this. And the disposition of Jesus himself to the people that are putting him to death, including you and me, is, Father, forgive them. And it's not just words, he actually becomes the atoning sacrifice for the sins of all of humanity, so that you and I would not be judged and condemned, but rather he was judged and condemned in our place, so that we could actually be brought in as sons and daughters and to know the family that we're part of with a perfect heavenly father. And anybody can get in on this. There's a triumph of God's grace, God's grace goes further, there's nobody that's beyond the grace of God. If abortion is part of your story, if you're a woman who's had an abortion, there's a triumph of God's grace. If you're a man who actively encouraged a girlfriend or a wife or somebody to get an abortion, there's a triumph of God's grace if you would repent of that. If you're somebody that stood idly by passively and said, well, I'll just let her do what she wants to do, right? there is a triumph of God's grace. And if you're somebody that's all puffed up and self-righteous thinking, I can't believe people do this sort of thing, There's a triumph of God's grace because we're all guilty. And so, in this, the calling, how do we think then as the church? How do we move towards like justice and righteousness? How do we step in without just barking and yelling at people? How do we actually show the love of Christ? What does it look like to care for the marginalized, the, the often overlooked? What does it care, look like to move towards mothers and fathers even that need help? And this is not the solution, but I wanna share with you a testimony of justice, of mishpat, of a right ordering, and then tell you about an opportunity. But I wanna, if you'll look at the screen here in a moment, I wanna share with you a, a, a short video here. So appreciate this. is Kim and Devin LaLon, their willingness to come and to share their story of entering in to foster a child. This is one way the church can say, hey, we see the need. We see the brokenness. We see the marginalized. And so it's a family that said, we're going to enter in. We're going to try and bring some to We're going to see the children in the womb and outside of the womb. Sanctity of life does not stop the moment the child is born. We're like, okay, cool. We're good to go. Like, what does ongoing care look like? the prayer is, at a couple levels, that we might have more families, that the Lord might call to this. And then there's also some opportunities, even if you don't feel called to foster a child yourself or to adopt a child, there's ways to get involved so that we can be the church and say, sanctity of life in the womb and outside of the womb, it all matters. So let's watch this video and I'll call us to, uh, I'll give us some information how you can find out more, but watch this now.
1: How we got into foster care is When we were talking about starting our own family, we knew that we wanted to grow it um, outside of just biological children. And we didn't know what that looked like, but we uh, were trusting God in that. And um, just working in the hospital and seeing babies who didn't have homes to go into um, stirred my heart. And then over time, we uh, were educated on it by friends and just learned the need of children Um, without homes and we knew that we have been given much and we didn't want to you know come face face of God and know that we've been given much and we did little with it and we knew that we had a loving home a good marriage and that we could do it and we could bring a child or children into the home that needed love and care and a safe place.
2: Yeah, and uh, one of the um, main, main things that motivated me as, as just before we started was just diving into scripture and prayer and reading throughout the Bible, not just New Testament but Old Testament. It talks about caring for the vulnerable um, and so I think through that prayer motivated us to just really push forward and see what this is about and um, We had an extra room, and we're like, that's an empty room that could be filled with a child that really needs help right now.
1: Yeah, the Bible says to care for widows and orphans, and these children don't have safe places to go to. There's redemption in the whole process of taking in a child that needs a home because we're ministering not only to the child, but to the parents to say like, hey, you messed up, but it doesn't have to be this way your past doesn't have to define you. And I think that that's huge for us because that's what Christ did for us. It doesn't define us. Um, our past sins don't define us, but there's redemption. And we wanted to also, I feel like the church can show families that there is redemption and love and they don't have to be judged in better past.
2: Even though we were called, um, or we felt like we were called to do this journey, it has been with its fair number of challenges. This child is a, a fourth child in our home. It comes with his own routines. His, uh, he's got another family. He's got appointments with doctors, with courts. Um, all these different extra things that weren't part of our daily routine that um, has, has changed that.
1: In the challenging moments and even in the good moments, Devin and I have reflected on the fact that this, there's hope in this. And I think without knowing that God is in all things and that there is a future um, that is filled without tears, that it motivates us to keep going. It's not an easy ask to bring a child into your home um, that has trauma and has gone through hard things um you know just be easier to just live our lives and not (laughs) do this but there's a purpose in it and i i think we both go back to that is we're not this isn't just to like be good people this is for the kingdom of god this is to make a difference for eternity
2: one of the ways We've seen God at work in this story um, is just through the redemption of the family. Uh, his parents are working towards reunification with him, and um, as foster parents, that is part of what we signed up for is to work with the family, not just with the child, of trying to get their family back together. And um, it's pretty amazing and um, a good reflection of just what Christ did to see this all working out the way it is.
1: There are thousands of kids just in central Florida that are in foster care. And statistically, foster children end up on the streets. Um, They end up being trafficked. And we have the ability, um, whether it is feeling the call to foster your own children Uh, or children um, or just coming around families and supporting them or finding ways to support um, organizations is huge. It's life-changing. These are the youth of our future. There are kids right now who don't have homes. They're sitting in offices, they're sitting in hotels and what better way to show Christ's love than to give them the love that they do not have, um, that they would not get other than people stepping up and answering the call to love them, to show them they matter.
2: We never felt prepared or equipped or honestly ready uh, to take a foster child into our home. Uh, We felt scared when we got our first call, um, but we were able to give a stable place for a child that was living without it. and God equipped us to do that. Um, he has worked in Kim and I's heart uh, tremendously, showing us that we are sinners in need of Him. Um, and He's given us eternal life through that. And that there's a big story that's playing out, bigger than my, my story, bigger than um, Kim's story, bigger than our foster child's story. Um, And just to be a little bit part of that
1: is something.
0: So church, as we close, I want to give a very specific invitation. We want to come alongside. We We want to care. Um, and part of being the church is saying we can't just say, hey, we care about, all right, we want the baby to to be be born. Don't terminate the, the, the child, right? And yes, we want to see all those things happen, but then also how do we continue to care? How does sanctity of life affect outside of the womb, and how do we step in? And so not everyone's going to be called to foster care or adoption. But I do believe everybody can help play a part. And so um, on March 5th, we're gonna have a foster care support lunch. There's an organization called C127. Um, and so this is an organization we've recently begun partnering with. The Lawns are working with them. Uh, Natalie Doherty is also working with, with them and she'll be outside after the service. If you've got any questions. And here's the thing, we wanna invite you, come learn about this incredible opportunity. Maybe God will call you to, to foster a child. But even if not, Take the lawns, for instance. There are people that are coming alongside of them, and what C-127 helps to do is to say, it's really hard to foster a child. Um, there's a lot of difficulty. So how do you care for that foster family? Like, how do you care for Kim and Devin, in this case, or any others that would step in into this? And sometimes it's as simple as, well, we'll bring them a meal, or we'll help watch their kids so they maybe can go out on a date night, or different things like that. And so there's a lot of different ways to be part of uh, this and what God's doing. And so, again, March 5th, after the service, um, we invite you to that. You can sign up at this is cp.church and just click the events tab. And after the service as well, please come and talk uh, with Natalie. So, church, I want to close our time in prayer, invite the worship team to come back up. Um, After I pray, we're going to join in song. If you've got elementary kids, if you would go uh, get them um, and bring them back in. And then after this next song that we sing, we'll have a chance to participate in communion. But let me pray for us now. Heavenly Father, thank you for your mercy, your grace, your pursuit of us. Jesus, we thank you that they are on the cross, that you offered forgiveness, that you achieved forgiveness, that we are all people that contributed to your death, and yet you loved us faithfully to the end, even though it would cost you everything. And God, may that grace that we've experienced, may that motivate us and fuel us to be the church that you've called us to be, that we would repent of our self-righteousness, that we would experience your grace, that we would be people that would step in to help bring mishpat, to help bring a right ordering for your glory and for the joy of all people in the womb and outside of the womb. So God, be honored now as we worship you through song, as we continue in our service, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.